Welcome to the Get Over Yourself podcast. This is author and athlete Brad Kearns discovering ways to be healthy, fit, and happy in hectic, high-stress modern life. So let's slow down and take a deep breath, take a cold plunge, and expertly balance that competitive intensity with an appreciation of the journey. That's the theme of the show. Here we go. I've had many conversations with people who espouse Ray Pete's philosophies, which I don't agree with. They're sort of interested in glucose, and they feel like glucose is a very valuable molecule in the body. I won't debate that glucose is a valuable molecule. I just don't think we need to get it in our diet in large amounts to be optimal or equivalent in any way, shape, or form. I talk about this in my book, which is called The Carnivore Code. It'll be out in February 2020. There's good studies which show that every unit of beta-carotene is only worth, I should say, we need 21 units of beta-carotene to equal one unit of preformed animal-based vitamin A, which is retinol vitamin A. So if we want to get enough beta-carotene to fulfill our vitamin A needs, we need 21 more times. Fruit is a special case that we can consider with plant toxins. We can get down the rabbit hole with regard to other types of plant food, including leaves and stems and roots and things like that, and seeds. But if we're talking about fruit, there's very clear evidence now that fructose is a metabolic disaster for humans. And in across animal kingdoms, it is very clear that our biology, because of what's called a uricase mutation and our uh, inability to break down uric acid, fructose makes us fat, as it does many other animals who also possess uricase mutations. Let's talk about ancestral supplements. If you're into ancestral health, primal paleo, keto, you know the importance of consuming these unique agents contained in bone marrow, in the nose-to-tail organ meats, liver, kidney, all that stuff, the great bone broth benefits. Well, how's it going? For me, since years ago when Dr. Kate Shanahan asserted the importance of these wonderful nutritional benefits that you can't get elsewhere, eh, not too good. I don't know how to cook a liver or a kidney, but now your problems are solved forever when you go to ancestralsupplements.com, a wonderful company filled with people who are living the dream, walking their talk, and bottling up the purest, cleanest sources of grass-fed organ meats, kidney, liver, bone marrow, all in these wonderful capsules. I dump them in my smoothie every day. I'm healthy. I don't have to worry. It's an incredible dietary boost. And this is so different from swallowing a bunch of those synthetic vitamins and those giant bottles from the big box stores, highly questionable health practice. This stuff is the real deal. Grass-fed organ meats, pure as can be, ancestralsupplements.com. Greetings. Host Brad Kearns travels to sunny seaside San Diego to podcast with my main man, carnivore expert, Dr. Paul Saladino, on the wonderful occasion of the release of his long-awaited book called The Carnivore Code. And this puppy is super-duper dense, filled with scientific references, practical tips about this interesting, compelling, intriguing carnivore diet. And as you'll see when I give him props at the start of the show, he's forever changed my thinking about what is healthy eating, what foods we need, what foods we don't need. We're going to hit some hot topics. And I love how Paul, he gets deep into the science, but he also frames the discussion with some really 
important big picture items. The first one being that animal foods, especially his promotion of the nose to tail style carnivore diet where you're emphasizing organ meats, not just muscle meats, and you're including all those great nutrient-dense foods like the fish, the eggs, the bone broth, all that kind of stuff that's stocked in his fridge and his freezer. Oh man, check out the pictures on Instagram. This guy is living the real deal, strict carnivore pattern for a year and a half, feeling great. And he's a super positive, enthusiastic promoter, but he also backs things up with compelling science. And I particularly enjoyed how we were able to dig deep into this concept that eating plants, fruits and vegetables are filled with these healthy antioxidants and actually the scientific chemical reactions in the body are much more nuanced than that with the end point, the takeaway point being that we don't need to eat these foods in Paul's strong opinion. So please enjoy our lively, fast moving conversation. Don't get intimidated when he gets deep into the science because he pulls you out very gently and carefully making sure that you have that takeaway point. It's Dr. Paul Saladino, author of The Carnivore Code. Follow him at CarnivoreMD on Instagram. Check out our little search session that we did and the photo opportunities we got on the beautiful beaches of San Diego. Dr. Paul Saladino. Rock and roll. Uh, the first podcast was in uh, April or May of 2019, and you, you changed my life, man. You, you got in my head, and uh, it's been a really interesting journey to explore this carnivore thing pretty deeply. You know, we got our, our cookbook out. I saw it on your, uh, in your library of wonderful books. And I think it's there's something to it. Obviously, you've had a, a huge following build in a very short time. And let's talk about this this book that's coming out pretty soon. Yeah, man. My goal is just to get in everybody's head. I got in, you know, Mark Sisson's head in a good way and lots of people's heads and get them really curious about this idea. When I first heard about the carnivore diet, I thought it was crazy. I thought it was crazy. We'll all get polyphenol deficiency and we all need fiber to poop and all these things. You know, it's we need all these phytochemicals. But I've been doing it a year and a half now, solidly. You know, You're we still were, here shredding the waves in San Diego. We yep. had a good session before the podcast, so we're, we're warmed up. Exactly. I'm super chill. I've been in the ocean all morning, and you know, I'm, I'm still fit. My body composition is amazing. My energy is great. My sleep is good. My libido is too good. You know, it just gets in the way of things, and you know, it, things are great. And um, I haven't had any plants, so I'll tell you what I've had. In the last year and a half, I've had plants three times, and it's always been the same thing. It's always been squash. So I've done kabocha squash three times in the last year as a carbohydrate reintroduction experiment and felt no better. I actually felt worse. I kind of felt, I, you know, I missed the low level of ketogenesis that I probably have going on most of the time. So I missed mental clarity and I didn't really feel any better. My workouts didn't get any better. Nothing really changed. I did it for a couple of days in a row on each, in each time to see if, well, what if I go out of ketosis for a few days? What does it feel like? Does my athletic performance improve? Does my mood change, et cetera? And I think that it all it all kind of got worse for me. I just I gravitated every single time back to a fully carnivore diet without any plants. And we can talk about the degree to which my carnivore diet is ketogenic if you want. Um, but because I eat one gram of protein per pound of body weight and about one to one fat to protein per day, it's probably low level ketogenic. A lot of times when I have a steak, I probably will dip out of quote unquote ketosis. Mm. If we're defining ketosis as 0.5 millimolar, I'll probably dip out of that for you know, a few hours around the time I eat because I'm eating about one gram of protein per pound of body weight per day. That seems to be the sweet spot for me. That's the sweet spot that's been studied for athletes on ketogenic, quote, diets. Actually, they're called low-carb uh, 
high fat diets like the faster study. So the faster study is a really fascinating one done by Finney and Volick. Ben Greenfield was a part of it. Uh, Zach Bitter was a part of it. People will know Zach Bitter just set the record for 100 miles in the world. And Ben Greenfield. Zach Bitter's a real game changer. <laughs> he is a real game changer. Uh, oh, yeah, he is. He is a real okay. game changer. Yeah. And what the, in that study, the people on the low carb, high fat diet um, had equal levels of glycogen storage utilization and repletion as people on a high carbohydrate diet. It's quite a fascinating study. And they had two groups. They had a high carb group and a low carb, high fat group. And the low carb, high fat group was eating about 2.1 grams of protein per kilogram, which is essentially one gram of protein per pound of body weight, which is about what I do. So I'm about 170 pounds and I will eat about 170 grams of protein per day. Now eating that much protein, I'm not in quote medical ketosis for a lot of the day. Probably when I wake up in the morning, my ketones are 0 0.8, 0.91 millimolar. And then I eat breakfast. I ate breakfast before you got here this morning. I had about, oh, I want to say maybe 16 ounces of a grass-fed, grass-finished regenerative ribeye from Belcampo. I'll tell you all about regenerative agriculture. I'm super stoked about that. And, um, and I had a little extra fat with it, and I had some bone broth and some bone marrow, and that was my breakfast. And I didn't check my ketones, but in the past when I have, after a breakfast like that, they'll dip to 0 0.2, 0 0.3. So it's not a deep deeply ketogenic diet, but that's kind of the way I'm doing it now. And as many will know who know me, I'm eating a lot of organs as well. And we can talk about that, but it's been, you know, what I have found and what they found in the faster study was that you can get equal levels of glycogen stored in your muscle, used in your muscle, and then replenished on a low carb, high fat diet, just like carnivore at those macros, something like one to one fat to protein, one gram of protein per pound of body weight. What we know on medical ketogenic diets, which are four to one fat to protein, is that people don't get enough protein. And if you don't get enough mm. protein, you won't have enough substrate for gluconeogenesis, generally speaking. And if glycogen stores are not full in the muscle, performance will suffer. But if we fill glycogen, which the faster study and other studies in low carb, high fat diets show, if we fill glycogen, there theoretically should be no difference in performance without carbs. And that was what I experienced in my carbohydrate reintroduction experiments. I felt no differently. I felt no better in my workouts. I, I felt worse in terms of mental clarity and focus, mm. worse in terms of probably in terms of recovery, worse in terms of satiety. Um, and again, there's an adaptation period as you're switching between low carb and higher so carb. So you were, you were more hungry is what you're more saying. Hungry, yeah. So you started, you, you threw a little bit of carbs back into the mix and you got hungrier. Mo much more yeah. hungry, much less satiated. And then we have to back up and say, I was doing it from a macronutrient perspective because I've had num numerous debates this past year with Chris Masterjohn and others. And Chris is not a fan of ketogenic diets. I've had many conversations with people who espouse Ray Pete's philosophies, which I don't agree with. Um, they're sort of interested in glucose and they feel like glucose is a very valuable molecule in the body. I won't debate that glucose is a valuable molecule. I just don't think we need to get it in our diet in large amounts to be optimal or equivalent in any way, shape or form. The other thing that they found in the faster study was that the athletes had no difference in performance, mm -hmm. right? And so that was what I noticed. I didn't have any difference in performance when I added carbs back and I thought, well, I'm less focused. I'm more emotionally sort of jittery and I'm more hungry and all of the carbohydrates that are in my diet with the squash are replacing more nutrient rich animal foods, mm. right? So I'm, we have this caloric budget that we eat every day and you know, for you, it might be 2,500 calories. For me, it might be 2,700 calories. For someone else, it might be 3,200 calories. Or for someone, it might be 1,600 calories. And the 
quality of those calories, the macronutrients that we use and the quality of the foods that make up those calories certainly affects the way our body does that. I think it's a little more complicated than calories in, calories out. And I think that weight loss is about caloric deficit, but that caloric deficit is relative to the foods we eat and all of the hormonal responses that occur in response to those foods. But so I'm going to say that if we want to lose weight, we need a caloric deficit. But for someone that only has a 1600 calorie budget per day, with all of that context that I just laid out, if you make 400 calories of that, carbohydrates, 100 grams or 200 wow. grams, 200 grams of carbohydrates, like some would suggest, like Chris Master Thomas, if 800, you know, if uh, 800 calories in your diet are carbohydrates, you only have 800 calories to get all of your micronutrients that are left. Mm -hmm. It's a squash that micronutrient rich. It's really not, right? I might get some beta carotene, but that beta carotene is not going to be very well converted to retinol vitamin A. We know this, whether or not I have BCMO polymorphism, which impairs that conversion. I talk about this in my book, which is called The Carnivore Code. It'll be out in February 2020. There's good studies which show that every unit of beta carotene is only worth, I, I should say, we need 21 units of beta carotene to equal one unit of preformed animal-based vitamin A, which is retinol vitamin A. So if we want to get enough beta carotene to fulfill our vitamin A needs, we need 21 more times right? 21 squashes against one slice of liver. Right, exactly. You have to eat, in order to get the RDA for vitamin A equivalents out of beta carotene, you have to eat, I think it's close to, I would say, three-fourths of a pound of squash or sweet potato is even richer in beta carotene. I might have to eat a pound of squash a day to get my RDA for vitamin A equivalent, right? So I'm filling up my diet, I'm filling up my calories with less nutrient-rich foods, and I thought, why would I do this? Why would I not eat, I don't know what my basal metabolic rate is. I estimate it's probably 2,600, 2,700 calories a day. Why not fill every single one of those calories with the most nutrient-rich food I can? Animal meat, animal organs, animal fat, bone broth, and get more of the vitamins and minerals that my body wants and give my body more of the things that are going to make it a strong, functional, corporeal being for me to be a part of, more that are going to make my brain function, more that are going to give my body the nutrients it needs to make hormones and to maintain muscle mass and trigger muscle growth, things like leucine and amino acids, right? None of those things are in plant foods. So what I discovered was, hey, I think that it's micronutrient density, micronutrient richness and micronutrient density that determines our quality of life. Hmm. How do we get the most of that? It's animal foods. Now, Chris Masterjohn would debate and say, oh, you need some of this and that from, from plant foods, and, and we can get into the nuance there, but I think it's very clear that we're going to get most of that from animal foods and we can get all of that from animal foods. And then the other side of the equation is all of the toxins that we leave out, right? All the toxins from plants that we're leaving out. And that's kind of the, the more controversial side. But yeah. besides those two reasons, uh, how, <laughs> what's good about the, the carnivore style diet? Well, I'm, you mentioned fat reduction uh, briefly in your uh, beautiful monologue there. Uh, that was it, a soliloquy. Yeah, it, it seems to me that um, for a huge percentage of the audience of health enthusiasts, we'd all like to drop five more pounds, 11 more pounds, 27 more pounds. It's a huge problem. Even with people who are extremely devoted, they're shopping at the, the chain grocery stores that claim to have the, the healthiest, uh, healthiest choices and all that. And so this, uh, this micronutrient density could be that secret weapon that transcends calories in, calories out. We talked about this in the ocean. You know, you and I had this conversation. Yes, we did. I said, save it for the podcast. <laughs> As we were trying to catch waves. And I said, Brad, I don't think losing weight is about eating less food. I think it's about eating different food. 
And that's one of the most profound things that people experience when they transition to a higher nutrient density diet, whether it's carnivore or paleo or primal or carnivore-ish diet, which I'll define for people. But higher nutrient density diets are clearly a fantastic step in the right direction for weight loss. It's not about eating less food. Eating less food works in the short term, but that is a mental, emotional, physiologic prison to put ourselves in. We do not want to feel like we're starving day in and day out because that will fail. Eventually, all of the patterning in our brains from millions of years of human evolution will win out and we will stop eating less. And we will stop eating less. So eating sorry less, to break it to you, people. Sorry, Lane Norton. That doesn't work. Yeah, you know. No, I mean, this is a serious point because I think a lot of well-meaning uh, enthusiasts that are selling millions of books or programs to to diet and lose weight. A lot of stuff works when you go into a restriction mode and we have our willpower and we can apply these powerful forces. But just like you said, evolution's going to win out. And at some point, you're going to start having, you know, one bite of Ben and Jerry's turns into a pint. I'm pleased to present B-Rad Grass-Fed Whey Protein Isolate Superfuel, the absolute highest quality, all-natural protein supplement infused with creatine that delivers everything you need to optimize your appetite for fat loss, recover quickly from workouts, and build and maintain Lean muscle mass, the single most important attribute for aging gracefully. Our protein comes directly from small family farms in America's dairy land of Wisconsin. It's cold processed and micro filtered for maximum bioavailability and digestibility. So please don't mess with the many cheap commodity protein supplements that are ineffective, inferior, less pure, and often contain junk sweeteners especially the plant-based offerings that are vastly less bioavailable than the gold standard of protein supplements that's whey protein isolate. Whether you're in your peak athletic years looking to grow and recover or in the older age groups trying to delay aging and decline, whey and creatine are widely agreed to be the most critical and effective supplements to take for the rest of your life. You can easily stir the super fuel in water or make a delicious smoothie every day. I'm certain that you're going to love the pleasant, light, natural vanilla bean and cocoa bean flavors. So try some on Amazon today. It's a huge hit with dozens of five-star reviews. Or you can order direct from bradnutrition.com with our buy three, get one free, and make the super fuel a centerpiece of your daily routine. You will break out of Alcatraz eventually, <laughs> right? Your body will not be held in Alcatraz. You can't do that. The only way, in my opinion, I suppose I shouldn't make sweeping statements like that, but I think the best way... But clearly, You're on the podcast. You could say whatever you want. Now. Make sweeping yeah. statements. The yeah. only Sweep way... Sweep it the, out. The best way is you have to increase nutrient density and that is done through animal foods and the quality mm. of food has to increase, right? So you cut out processed foods and you increase the nutrient density with animal foods and that is the first step to weight loss. Just eating less Pop-Tarts is a recipe for failure. You can do that for a month or two mm -hmm. or six and then you're gonna fail miserably and you're mm -hmm. gonna become micronutrient deficient. So flexible dieting doesn't work. You know, Micronutrient poor diets don't work. Eating less food doesn't work. What I do and what I've found for myself for most people, if they are metabolically healthy, I can eat to satiety every single meal, right? Before you came, I had breakfast. I didn't want to eat another bite, Brad. Mm -hmm. I had no interest. I was like, I am, I'm absolutely full. And then at lunch today, I usually eat two meals a day. 
and I do some time-restricted eating. I eat the second meal of the day early in the afternoon. So I'll eat a, a late lunch today and that'll be my quote dinner and that'll be it. And I won't be hungry later in the day. I have so much satiety. And of course I'm young and people might say you're young, but I'm, you know, I'm 42. I'm, you know, I'm an adult. Like, <laughs> okay. I'm, you're young. You feel young. I know. I feel young. I'm not that young, but you know, I can eat to satiety at every single meal. I am never hungry. I am not in an emotional, physical, mental prison. My performance is where I want it to be. And I don't have to work hard to maintain my weight. Right? So this is the difference. It's not that we need to eat less food. It's that we need to eat better quality food. And my sort of work is centered around the idea that the best quality food we can eat is animal food. It's been vilified mm -hmm. and I am here to exonerate it, to show people that it, that vilification is uncalled for, incorrect and hurting people. And then on the flip side, perhaps the more controversial part of the work I do is showing people that plants can hurt them. And that for people who have autoimmune disease, inflammatory disease, psychiatric disease, which I would characterize as mostly inflammatory. What do you know about that? <laughs> oh, that's right. You're a psychiatrist. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's mostly inflammatory in the brain uh, right. rather than an imbalance of neurotransmitters that we can drug our asses off and try to fix. Exactly. And is this sort of a radical Paul Saladino observation or is science heading in this direction? Well, if you look at the science, there's clear science to support that. But mainstream psychiatry hasn't really caught on to that yet. You know, I just... I did my residency, my residency in the University of Washington, which is no slouch. You know, it's very prestigious, you know, psychiatric residency, you know, medical school, you know, all of these things were not. Dang, know, what a waste. Now you're just like catching waves and talking about eating only animal foods. And helping thousands more people than I would have doing exactly. the other thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, including in, in the psychiatric realm. Yes, right? so many patients I see now, so many of my patients and clients have psychiatric issues and get profoundly... Uh, better when they change their diet and food affects illness and disease in a huge way. I had Chris Palmer on my podcast. He's a psychiatrist at um, uh, McLean Hospital in Boston, which is the Harvard, the most prestigious Harvard psychiatric hospital. And he was talking about using ketogenic diets for bipolar and schizophrenia. So people can find that on my podcast, which is Fundamental Health. But yeah, I'm board certified in psychiatry. I practice more broadly now. I realized that if it affects the brain, it's coming from the body. And so I wanted to know about the whole body. So I practice more broadly, but formally I was trained in psychiatry and had an original interest in mental health because it's so pervasive. Depression is the single biggest cause of morbidity in the United States and possibly the world today. We lose more productivity, causes more suffering than anything else. And it's so poignant, right? It's so interesting to hear someone's story and their passion. And it's a big deal when somebody says they're depressed or suicidal. That kind of hits you right in the gut, you know? Hits you right in the feels. That was cool. Medicine, in my experience, wanted to make me less human, or I felt pulled to be less human in medicine. And psychiatry kind of had that human mm. side to it, to hear someone's story. I love internal medicine. My dad's an internist, and I thought about doing a joint internal medicine psychiatry residency. I probably should have done an internal medicine residency. Maybe I'll go back and do that someday, but I doubt it. And But I love the science. I love how it all fits together. And what I saw was that that type of a residency pushes us toward being less human, to seeing patients as laboratory values and diseases. But psychiatry allowed me to hear the story. I just wanted to stay human in my training. So anyway, you know, illness, autoimmune illness, psychiatric disease, inflammatory disease, if people have those illnesses and they're not getting better, it could be the plants because plants have toxins. And we know this and plants affect people. And I've seen this over and over and over now in my practice and in my work on social media and stuff, people with all kinds of diseases that are commonly reported or commonly considered to be idiopathic and incurable from psoriasis, eczema, rheumatoid arthritis, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, lupus, um, you know, um, 
all kinds of stuff. Uh, what's the one I'm thinking of? Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, rosacea, the autoimmune spectrum, right? We have an epidemic of autoimmune disease in this country. What is causing it? In my opinion, it's mostly food. And for a lot of people, plants are a huge trigger. So the other part of my message, the first part of my message is meat is amazing for you. It's not bad for you. The second part of my message is plants have toxins. Mm-hmm. And if you're not where you want to be, eliminating some or all plants might be what you need to resolve your illness. Besides that, don't pay any attention to this nonsense. But uh, we're in this uh, controversial time now. Everyone I talk to is begging me to watch this documentary about these great athletes performing, uh, you know, magnificent feats uh, with a, with a specific restrictive diet. So, and I've had Rip Esselstyn on my podcast, my old friend. I love him. He's doing a great job. He's changing a lot of lives, just like you are. And and we have material differences of opinion on this matter or that matter. So if we could start uh, gently, and maybe come to some common ground, such as a lot of the animal products out there are probably pretty nasty and maybe you, you wouldn't even eat them. So, you know, where are we gonna where are we gonna source these these beautiful micronutrient rich animal products and stay away from some of those objections that have we've been pounded on our entire lives. Well I have a section in my book, Why Do Vegan Diets Work? Right? I think it's important to talk about because for some people vegan and plant based diets are very healing in the short term. My concern and I've done podcasts with other vegans on my podcast, mm-hmm. kind of friendly debates. My concern is that long-term vegan diets fail because they're micronutrient insufficient and they're full of you know, anti-nutrients and potentially inflammatory plant defense molecules, which we talked about probably a lot on the first podcast, that can trigger the immune system. But what we know very clearly is that food is medicine and food is inflammatory. Food is medicine and food is also disease, right? So food is the opposite of medicine too. So food can be good for us and food can be bad for us. And any diet that eliminates things, often healing from illness is not about adding something. It's about eliminating something. And so many people want to sell us things that we add to Mm. fix our illness, right? And Western medicine wants to give us pills that we add and it doesn't fix our illness. It just ameliorates the symptoms. Mm. But real healing comes when we remove the impediment. This is a naturopathic concept, though I'm trained as an MD. So we, when we remove the impediment, when we remove the thing that is causing the inflammation, the body is free to do its healing. So real healing, root cause healing, often happens by removing something more than putting something in if we don't have a vitamin or mineral deficiency, right? And we won't have vitamin and mineral deficiencies if we're eating nutrient-rich animal foods. So... The vegan diets work in the short term because they're eliminating processed food. The question is always relative to what? Vegan diet is better than what? Starbucks. Better, better than, than Ben better Jerry's. Than, better than triple mocha frappuccinos. Better than sausage and egg biscuits from McDonald's. Yeah, well, Dean Ornish done great work. Codwell Esselstyn has reversed heart disease. They have the science to prove it. They got those people out walking every day. They got them reporting back on their caloric intake and doing all these things that Americans are so far off track that, yes, you're going to get results. Now, you say uh, long-term you have concerns. Absolutely. Is this maybe a variation among individuals where there's some uh, people touting their 20-year track record of success and they're okay because they have certain genetic profile that can methylate better just eating plants? Or you think it's... (laughs) <laughs> big no. old fat no, no by Dr. Paul. No, it's not. All right. I think that there is genetic variation in how well we tolerate plant toxins. And some people are more susceptible Kinda to like, plant. Uh, gluten. Right. We're, we're all sensitive to gluten, everyone. I, I believe so. Some people a little bit. Some, some people, people blown off the charts. Yes. Okay. And I think that 
you know, the reason everyone doesn't absolutely crater on plant-based diets immediately <laughs> is because some people are probably more able to tolerate those toxins longer term. But I, I think that at the basis, we are all not that different, right? I don't think that there are some people who have genetics that say, you know what, you can really thrive on a plant-based diet. You can extract these nutrients so much better than anyone else. And really a plant-based diet is going to be best for you. No. In my opinion, absolutely not. There are no selective pressures that I've ever seen in our evolutionary history that would have caused multiple different races of people, right? Because that would almost be an entire speciation mm -hmm. because we have been eating meat and predominantly meat throughout human evolution for more than 2 million years. We've been, quote, human or hominid for almost 4 million years, depending which anthropology text you look at. You know, we were Australopithecus, then Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Neanderthals branched off, Denisovans branched off, but there's very clear evidence that the size of the human brain accelerated rapidly in growth around 2 million years ago when we started eating animals. There's evidence for stone tools, hunting of animals at that time, group hunting practices, and the size of the human brain suddenly got much bigger over the following 2 million years. That is because we started eating animals. Almost, I mean, that is really not that debatable. There's so much evidence there. So I think animal foods have been the foundation of our human existence. They made us human. Animal foods made us human. To ignore that is to become, is to choose to be suboptimal, is to choose to be, you know, not our best self. Now, people may do okay on vegan diets in the short term, right? Mm. And I think that ultimately cardiovascular disease is about insulin resistance. It's about insulin resistance. And how do you reverse insulin resistance? And brain disease. Well, cardiovascular disease, mm -hmm. right, is about insulin resistance. And brain disease, yes, about insulin resistance. So what causes insulin resistance? A number of things can cause it. One of them is inflammation. We know that we get insulin resistant when we have systemic infections. And if we have chronic inflammation due to leaky gut or other issues with the gut, that appears to be able to cause insulin resistance. The most common cause of insulin resistance is mixed macronutrient overfeeding. <laughs> Right, <laughs> which is a fancy term, which M means MMO. Yeah. it's called mixed macronutrient oh, overfeeding. I just made that up. Yeah, um, yeah. that's a, that's a well, problem. Pairing fat and, and and sugar together is fat and carbohydrates hijacking the, mm -hmm. the the reward center in the brain. Well, not it hijacks the reward center in the brain, and it absolutely um, negatively affects our biochemistry. So if we overfeed an animal, whether it's a human or a rodent, but especially in humans, we've seen the same physiology. If we overfeed a human with carbohydrates and fat, we become insulin resistant like that, like mm. really fast. We become much less insulin resistant when we overfeed exclusively carbohydrates mm. or exclusively fat, which is why high carb, low fat diets can work and high fat, low carb diets can work. But mixed diets of fat, equal amounts, fat and carbohydrates with a moderate amount of protein only work if we're not overeating calories, right? So that's the problem people run into. I'm not saying mixed diets can't work. I'm saying that if you overeat on a mixed diet of equal amounts, fat, and carbohydrates, you are going to create insulin resistance. And this is a signal that comes originally probably from your adipocytes to the mitochondria in your muscles and liver, and they, they send out certain uh, fatty acids. They send out palmitic acid in that case. They send out a saturated fat called palmitic acid from the adipocytes that says, we are full, everybody else refuse insulin and become insulin resistant. And the way those adipocytes get overstuffed is because of mixed macronutrient overfeeding. So the answer is, if you are insulin resistant, you either need to go high carb, low fat, high fat, low carb, or mixed macronutrients with caloric deficit. So vegan diets can work because number one, they usually have a caloric deficit, which we know is beneficial for humans, but not long-term because that is starvation. 
but how do you get enough calories on a vegan diet? It's very hard. So they work because people get weight loss. When you remove the breaks on the system, when people have caloric deficiency or caloric deficit, that removes a lot of these breaks on the signaling from the adipocytes to the liver and the muscles, and the body becomes less insulin resistant. I'm not arguing that they don't work. I'm arguing that they do work and that we understand the biochemistry, and there's a better way to do that. And it's a way that includes more micronutrients, less plant toxins. So I don't think Rip's diet is going to work long-term for people. I think it's a short-term fix, but so is fasting. Or, you know, restricting calories and exercising your ass off long-term is going to work pretty well. You're going to stay with good blood values and all those things. You know what else works? Caloric deficit eating Twinkies. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. So then we get into the, um, the micronutrient aspect of it. Right. So no one is advocating for a Twinkie diet. No one, but that's exactly, in my opinion, that's analogous to a vegan diet, right? They're creating, they're creating, (laughs) there's a soundbite for the show. (laughs) They're using nutrient poor food and creating a caloric deficit. Relatively nutrient poor. Relatively. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering like, you know, if, if someone felt blindsided by listening to this, such as a, an expert in uh, plant-based eating, um, you know, what are some of the theoretical comebacks to, let's say, the evolutionary example of we have bigger brains than the gorilla who spends 11 hours a day eating, eating plants to get the nutrition it needs? I mean, how do, how do you challenge that and say, oh, no, no, uh, a, plant, a plant-based lifestyle is the way to go and eating meat is nasty and, and evil? Um, well, there are a couple of arguments that people will advance. Um, the one thing I will mention with regard to those is that primates ate plants Mm. eight to 10 hours a day for 40 million years before they evolved into humans and their brains didn't get any bigger, right? A steady diet of, of leaves and fruit and nuts didn't make primates brains any bigger, right? But it really works though. (laughs) They've lived for 40 million years, right? Yeah. But they didn't get any bigger brains. And there's actually great studies that are population studies. I believe from Denmark, I referenced these in my book, looking at the size of the brain of humans and they can correlate the size of the brain with the amount of B12 in the body. So people who have lower amounts of B12, smaller brains. Wow. People who have more B12, bigger brains. And there's an unpublished set of data from that study. They did a subgroup analysis, and who do you think had lower B12? Vegans and vegetarians. Who had the smaller brains? Vegans and vegetarians. Who had the bigger brains? Omnivores. And the largest vegan vegetarian brain was smaller than the smallest omnivore brain. So... If we're thinking about brain size, there's some pretty compelling data there around a nutrient found uniquely in animal foods. And any of the plant-based advocates, if they're feeling blindsided by this, I would invite them on my podcast. You're welcome any day. I will gladly have a friendly debate with you. But there is no availability of B12 outside of animal foods. It is falsehood to suggest that. I did a whole podcast in response to the James Wilkes and Chris Kresser episode on Joe Rogan. On that podcast, James Wilkes claims you could get enough vitamin B12 from free um, lakes in Britain, which is completely false. It was based on a study which showed blooms of a microorganism or a a protozoa called Nagleria. And it was only certain months of the year when you could actually get even remotely appropriate doses of B12 from Nagleria. And other times of the year, you'd have to drink 20 to 30 liters of water to even approach two micrograms of B12, which is the RDA. Most people, pregnant mothers, you and I, do much better with higher doses of B12 than two micrograms, right? We're gonna get, I'm going to get 10 times that today from the meat that I eat in terms of B12. So there's really, our ancestors would never have gotten enough B12 from water. Never, never, never. And the other thing that James Wilkes talked about on that podcast was you could get B12 from soil, 
Well, the, the study he referenced, he apparently didn't read in detail because the study was talking about night soil, quote unquote, which is a sort of historical finding of people who grew plants in their own manure. So if you're eating... That's where they got the B12. That's, <laughs> yep. If you eat your own poop, you can get B12. So vegans, vegetarians, I guess vegetarians may not be as deficient in B12 depending on how they construct their diet, but a plant-based diet... Humans can get B12 by eating their own poop. So if you grow vegetables in your poop, you might get some active B12. But in the soil are B12 analogs that don't work physiologically in humans. And I don't think any of us want to eat our own poop. So, you know, there's really no B12 in the environment. And the higher the levels of B12, the bigger the brain. The lower the level, the smaller the brain in population studies. That's a widely acknowledged supplement for a vegan. They probably have a cupboard full of things, which is uh, a little bit uh, disturbing, the whole concept of that that you need all this stuff. You have a dire need for it in many respects. Right. I had some vegans on my show, and they're great guys. And I said, what supplements do you take? And they had to take multiple supplements, right? So they were taking <laughs> you know, zinc. Going and, on and on and on. Zinc and B12. Yeah. And, I mean, I take a lot of supplements too, but I'm, I'm going for peak performance. I'm not uh, trying to shore up a glaring dietary deficiency. I don't take any. There you go. Yeah. I mean, we got a picture of this guy's fridge and his freezer. It's going to blow your minds. People, I'll put it on Instagram, a carnivore fridge. I want to drill down on this plant toxin uh, concept and also understand it clearly because we've been told our whole lives that the, the blueberries are a, quote, high antioxidant food or the broccoli or the, the, the leafy greens have these wonderful compounds in them. And so uh, the layman's, uh, at least my layman's understanding was if I eat a handful of blueberries, I'm going to ingest a bunch of antioxidants into my body. But is this sort of um, not the way it works? It's not the way it works. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not the way it works. So blueberries and some berries are known for proanthocyanidins. And fancy words lend, you know, make supplement companies millions of dollars, right? I'll go back to what I said earlier. Finding health is about move, removing things rather than adding things, right? None of us is, really has a blueberry deficiency. Evolutionarily, how often would your ancestors have gotten blueberries? Uh, in, the, in the ripening, narrow ripening seasons, depending on where they lived. So from, from zero to... Uh, a good fall harvest, right? Right. So maybe a few weeks out of the year, occasionally at certain latitudes, right? Now, but, you know, people throughout the world don't have access to these, right? Every supermarket in the entire United States has blueberries all year round. So it would have been an occasional thing. If those were so good to us, for us, well, you're going to be deficient in them nine, ten months out of the year. Well, you're, how is that going to work out? You know, that doesn't make sense. But at a basic level, proanthocyanidins are a pigment. They're made for plants by plants. They're not made for humans. Fruit is a special case that we can consider with plant toxins. We can get down the rabbit hole with regard to other types of plant food, including leaves and stems and roots and things like that, and seeds. But if we're talking about fruit, there's very clear evidence now that fructose is a, a metabolic disaster for humans. Mm -hmm. And in across animal kingdoms, it is very clear that our biology, because of what's called a uricase mutation and our uh, inability to break down uric acid, fructose makes us fat as it does many other animals who also possess uricase mutations. Widely acknowledged by anybody. This right. is not a, a, in debate. No, it's not debatable. Right. Like, what do animals eat in the fall to fatten up before they hibernate? What do birds eat to fatten up before they fly long distances? They eat fruit. Fruit creates insulin resistance in human beings. There's physiology to explain this. This is, it's debated by some, and the dose makes the poison, right? A few blueberries a day is going to be a problem, but you can't eat them 
you know, a, you know, in an unchecked manner. If you ate, you know, a pound of blueberries, you're certainly going to have some metabolic parameters change in a negative way in your body, a negative way. And those anthocyanidins are a pigment made by blueberries. So aside from all the magical quote unquote compounds in these, in these fruit that people want to sell us in a pill, the fructose in fruit will make us insulin resistance. Like that's not even really questionable. Fructose is metabolized differently. It's been a part of our evolution that if we needed to become fat, survive lean winners, we would eat a whole bunch of fruit. Not a good thing for humans. So if we move out of that into some of the other molecules, it'll illustrate this point a little better, like sulforaphane and broccoli, for instance. Well, broccoli is a brassica vegetable. It's derived from an ancestral mustard plant. So in the brassica family are kale, collard greens, chard, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, broccoli, things like this. All of the comp, all of the plants in this in this family have a, a booby trap system, which makes sulforaphane. Sulforaphane is not present in broccoli as it sits on the shelf in a grocery store. What is present is a precursor molecule called glucoraphanin, which is a glucosinolate. Glucosinolates are present throughout the family of brassica vegetables, and they are a booby trap. You ever see Goonies like booby traps? Data booby traps. Right? So this is Slick's shoes. He's going to spring the trap on someone. You know that scene in Goonies where he's walking across the log and he's like, Slick shoes. And the, the, little, the little oil things come out of the back of his shoes, right? That's essentially kind of like what broccoli is doing. It has this precursor molecule, glucoraphanin, which isn't toxic to the plant or to animals. But there's an enzyme, myrosinase, which lies in wait. And when animals chew the plant... Because broccoli is never going to get ground up in its normal life or kale or collard or whatever. When you chew broccoli, kale, collard, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, myrosinase combines with glucoraphanin, kind of like super glue, and you get a chemical reaction and outspring sulforaphane, right? That's a booby trap. And the reason it's a booby trap is because it's a pro-oxidant. This is not debatable. This is the medicinal chemistry or this is the actual biochemistry of sulforaphane. People who know the literature cannot debate this. Sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant. Now, what is a pro-oxidant? Greetings, my fitness-minded listeners. I want to acquaint you with the Primal Fitness Expert Certification Program, the most comprehensive home study multimedia fitness education course in the world. If you want to enhance your personal knowledge of all aspects of leading a healthy, active, fit lifestyle, this total immersion course will be life-changing. I'm the lead instructor and author of the course, and we have 14 chapters of extensive written content with over 100 accompanying videos covering topics such as general everyday movement, including micro-workouts and dynamic workstation tips, the full experience of gym-based strength training and all the different modalities, a complete presentation on all aspects of sprinting, both running and low-impact options, an assortment of high-intensity interval training and high-intensity repeat training strategies, a detailed education on the principles and practical application of aerobic endurance training, and extensive commentary, the most you will find in any publication, on all aspects and symptoms of overtraining and burnout. We even have fascinating peripheral topics like integrating nasal diaphragmatic breathing, dynamic stretching, injury prevention, and developing a peak performance mindset. It's really something, this course. We went all out for over two years with a great team to develop this amazing home-based fitness education for you. 
And you get one-on-one -on -one expert email support and private Facebook group connection throughout your studies to ensure that you absorb everything optimally and you pass your series of exams and get certified. So go to primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad to enjoy a very special limited time. And I'm not kidding. This is a big time discount just for you. 25% off your tuition. A fantastic premium offer at primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad for the most comprehensive fitness course you can ever find. Oxidation and reduction are the gain and loss of electrons. Um, so loss of electrons is oxidation. Gain of electrons is reduction. So a pro-oxidant is a molecule that pulls electrons from other molecules, creating free radicals. What's a free radical? It's a molecule with an unpaired electron. Why is it a problem? Because it in induces other molecules to then become free radicals. We call this peroxidation reactions. In the case of lipids, we get lipid peroxides formed. These are very reactive species. Electrons want to be paired. When molecules start ripping electrons away, you get unpaired electrons, which are quite reactive. Not a good thing. Sulforaphane creates unpaired reactive electrons, also known as free radicals. The, the way this has become confusing is because in doing that, as a pro-oxidant, as a clear toxin, the, the intent of plants is clear. It induces the NRF2 system in the liver. There are many things that we do in our lives that do this. Being in the sun can do this. Heat, cold. They are also pro-oxidants, right? And there's a difference between them. These are environmental hormetics versus molecular hormetics from plants. People call the molecular hormetics from plants xenohormetics. And I make a distinction in my book between environmental hormesis and molecular hormesis. So I'll talk about molecular hormesis and then we'll talk about environmental hormesis. So molecular hormesis is pro-oxidants. Other molecules do the same thing. Uh, I'm trying to think of another one. Uh, resveratrol has been known to do the same thing. Anything that induces the NRF2 system in our body, cigarette smoke, alcohol, <laughs> lead, mercury, they are pro-oxidants. They are creating free radicals. But when they create free radicals, this switch in the liver gets tripped and it makes more glutathione, which is our molecular policeman. And that can be, that is where people think of hormesis, right? So it's the antioxidant defense response. We're fighting back against this thing we just ingested. Right. That's a poison to us. Right. And that's where you get the net health benefit or the arguable net health benefit that we've, that is the reason they're touting things and why... Your, if your smart neighbor walked in, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, doing her videos about sulforaphane, saying that broccoli sprouts are the greatest food known to mankind because they have this, I guess it's a power, it stimulates a powerful antioxidant defense response in the body. Yes. But it's not, the, it, when you're on that bus in the first place, when the blueberries or the broccoli or whatever's on the bus going down your throat, they're not inherently antioxidant. That's what you're saying. They're not inherently antioxidant. And I want to correct you. To demonstrate a net benefit is not been shown. And this is where the nuance is. This is where the devil's in the details, right? This is where people are so confused. Because you can, I can show you studies that say you give someone sulforaphane, they have less DNA damage. Why do they have less DNA damage? Because there's more glutathione, right? Now, what people are ignoring is all of the other things that sulforaphane is doing in the body. If you just use your microscope mm. and focus in, Right? If you just focus in with your microscope on DNA damage and glutathione, these molecules increase that in the short term. When we look in the long term, they don't have benefit. And I'll talk about those studies 
even the glutathione benefits are attenuated long-term. And I'll talk about those studies in a moment. But in the short term, remember, sulforaphane is a plant toxin. And in addition to inducing oxidative stress, it's also competing with iodine at the level of the thyroid. Mm -hmm. Glucosinolate molecules, right, make isothiocyanates. Isothiocyanates are a family which includes sulforaphane. Isothiocyanates are well, well known to induce endemic goiter in regions of the world where iodine intake is insufficient. So if someone is eating broccoli and not getting enough iodine, you can definitely push toward hypothyroidism. So why would we do that? The intent of plants is clear. And then sulforaphane is doing other things elsewhere in the body that are negative, right? What we, this is my, so analogy here. When you go to the pharmacy, you don't take any medications probably because you're healthy, but when people go to the pharmacy and they get a drug, right? Metoprolol, lisinopril, losartan, blood pressure medication, whatever, a statin, in the box is a list of all the side effects, <laughs> right? Where do we get a lot of our pharmaceuticals from? Plants. We get them from plants. And so we're treating these plant molecules as if they are unique. But molecules that are foreign to human biochemistry, whether it's synthesized in a lab, like lisinopril or losartan, or molecules that are coming from plants, all have a package insert. They all have side effects. And those are what we're not being told about. Right, So we're focused on this. It's like the guy comes and paints your house and he does a good job and he leaves all this shit in the driveway and there's a mess and he, he broke one of the windows and broke the, the Venetian blinds, but he did paint your house. But Rhonda Patrick's pointing to the house saying, look, he painted the house. And I'm pointing at the driveway saying, look at all this other stuff he caused. Right. So she's, she, she, I don't want to pick on her, but you know, the, the scientific article that the person just read that was on the front page of the, 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 the internet website is accurately stating that this glutathione boost is wonderful and it came from eating the leafy green or the the nut, the seed. The, the walnuts have the incredible antioxidant benefits. And So you're telling a story of broccoli, sulforaphane. I just want to uh, suggest that this transcends across the, the plant kingdom where they all have these defense molecules and the reason they have them is... The reason they have them is to, to defend their bodies and their roots and seeds against, against animals eating them. And the scientific community, I, I believe, has been overly focused on the painted house and ignored the wreckage elsewhere. And so here's my argument. Why would we ingest broccoli for glutathione if we don't need it? When you can fast... When you can fast, when you can or go, go in a cold plunge, exactly, exactly, or do a weight weight workout, exactly. And there are studies which demonstrate exactly, exactly that. Brad, there's a study in cold water swimmers in Berlin, which shows they go in the water in January for an hour, and their glutathione levels plummet, and then induce suggesting oxidative stress, and then they go up to above normal. Right. So you can get the same benefits, and that is an environmental hormetic. But environmental hormetics are not molecules coming into our body. They're what we've always done. They don't really have a list of side effects like sulforaphane. They come over and paint your house, and they clean the driveway. They don't do that kind of stuff because they're not molecules circulating in your body. Same thing happens with sunlight. Same thing happens with sauna. Same thing happens with cold. Same uh, thing happens fasting, with fasting. Fasting. Count in that category. Yes. So you're taking yes. something out, just like your original argument. Yeah. You're removing something, in this case, food of all, any kind. And so the, the way you really got into my head is like, um, we're, we're thinking of this high nutrition breakfast, whatever it is, could be the, the oatmeal with the blueberries and the, 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 the green smoothie, uh, with all these great things inside there versus fasting until 12 noon, I'm getting a better or arguably 
similar antioxidant oh, I would say and better. health response. And this is sort of undisputed, I would say, right? Yeah, I mean, I, don't I, mean th- I think it's very hard to argue that. And I would argue that the, the oatmeal breakfast with blueberries is not really doing as yeah. much as you think it is, and I'll tell you why. But at the core of this argument is the premise that is often being ignored. Blueberries make us better than we can be without them. Broccoli makes us better than we can be without it. Broccoli gives me X number of superpowers, right? Yeah. That, oh, I'm going to live long like the blue zones. Don't, don't they eat a bunch of this stuff? I talked in the blue. My book has a whole debunking of the blue zones in it. We go into detail. The Paul zones. The Paul chapter zones. 14, the it's, Paul zone. It's in chapter uh, 10. But yeah, debunking the blue zones in detail. We can talk about that if we have time. But here's the deal. It's really not easy to demonstrate in the scientific literature that any of these plant compounds make us better, right? They make us better than we can be without them. You know what? There are compounds in meat that can do the same thing, but nobody ever thinks about them as hormetics. Have you heard of heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons? When you cook a steak on the grill, what do those do? Those also induce the NRF2 system in the liver. The carcinogenic effects of overcooking meat you're talking about. (laughs) Well... I would say that the carcinogenic effects are quite, quite arguable and overblown. Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So okay. that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down, but they induce oxidative stress, right? Well, they induce... So the, so the vegans are right when they're ripping on my, my <laughs> steak that I browned, whatever. Well, again, it's difficult to demonstrate that they're actually increasing your rates of cancer, right? But they activate the same system in the liver. So the premise that I'm arguing for here, or the point that I'm making is... I think it's not as cut and dry that these plant foods give us magical extra benefit that we can't get other ways. So what I advance in the book is we as humans can be optimal from an antioxidant perspective without plants at all. And it's a better equation because then we don't get any of the toxins. Then we don't have to worry about the toxins, right? Curcumin I'll mention briefly and then we'll move on from this. Curcumin everyone says is amazing because of anti-inflammatory benefits. I think that's absolute hogwash because why are you inflamed in the first place? Don't use a molecule. <laughs> don't use a molecule to affect inflammation without knowing where the inflammation comes from and curcumin has a huge package insert. A huge package insert. Curcumin has been shown to affect many things negatively in the human body. The HERG channel, H-E-R-G channel, which is a potassium channel. Uh, It affects thioredoxin reductase. It affects the P53, which is an oncogene. And it has been shown to create oxidative stress as well. So the package insert for these plant molecules is being ignored under the false assumption that we need them to be optimal, which I think has never been shown. And I think the opposite has been shown. And so the series of studies I would point people to, I go into detail in the book, and they're comparing fruit and vegetable excess or extreme diets with fruit and vegetables. These are interventional studies to people who have no fruits and vegetables in their diet. And these are done from 24 days to 12, 11, 12 weeks. There are five or six studies I talk about in the book. And so one group of people has no fruits and vegetables in their diet, none, no, no magical plant molecules. And they're not eating a carnivore diet. They're eating like bread and milk and meat, right? So we could do way better in their diet, but they're just, they're not eating any fruits and vegetables. The other group eats, there's, again, there's five studies, but as a whole, the pattern is for them to eat between one to one and a half pounds of fruit and vegetables a day, all right? At the end of 24 days or 11 weeks, they look at detailed analyses of oxidative stress, DNA damage, inflammation, immune activation. What do they see? No difference. No difference. And in one study, the removal of fruits and vegetables led to an improvement in markers of oxidative stress and DNA damage. So if these, if the promises of sulforaphane and these magical plant molecules are true, why can we not demonstrate that in all the studies? 
Because if this is true, right, you should be getting superpowers. You should be getting more glutathione. You should be protecting your DNA longer. But it doesn't show up in many studies. And these are not, they're not eating wimpy vegetables. I don't know what people would consider wimpy vegetables, but they're eating things like Jerusalem artichokes, spinach, broccoli, carrots, right? And, and at the end of 12 weeks or 24 days across these five or six studies, no difference in the markers of oxidative stress. So where is the benefit? And the other thing is they're not even looking at the potential negative effects. They're not looking at thyroid function. They're not looking at you know, the potential for triggering autoimmunity. They're not looking at nutrient inadequacy because what we know is that many of these plant toxins, in addition to affecting the body negatively in other parts of our biochemistry, specifically the tannins, in things like tea, tea and grapes, and, kombucha. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> the tannins are there to be digestive enzyme inhibitors, and they decrease the absorption of other minerals. Right. So plants. The, the overarching theme is that plants just don't want to get eaten, and that's intuitive. Neither do animals, but animals can run away or gore you this with their the food chain. It's yeah. called the food chain. They can gore yeah. you with their antlers, or they can bite you. Right. But plants are stuck in the ground. They can't move anywhere, so they've had to develop all these molecules to defend themselves to exist in an ecosystem with animals. And because those animals have been eating those plants for millions of years, they've kind of developed systems to defend against the chemicals in a better way than we have. But the hypothesis that I advance in the book is that, look, we've been eating mostly meat for 2 million years. We've only been using plants as survival food because we can get by on them for a little bit if we just need the calories to get to tomorrow. Yeah, that's a good line, man. I mean, you, you, that's the first time I heard you, you say it back then. You said they're survival foods. Plants are survival and so, foods. Uh, the, the comeback that humans are most definitely omnivores and, and look at the, the research, it's like, yeah, because not, we, we didn't succeed sometime. You ever been hunting? I, I never have. I'm it's sorry. Hard. I know you just got back. Huh? How'd hard. you do out there? It's good. I How'd res- you do? I respectfully, yeah, I respectfully, yeah. and it was a very moving experience. Every time oh. I hunt and get an animal, it's a very moving experience. But I got a, I got a deer, I got a white-tailed deer with my bow um, at about 25 yards, which was great. And it was cold as heck that morning. So it was very, and you know, you walk up to the deer and I oh, thank you for this sacrifice. You know, I want to honor the presence of this deer and I'll do it now on the podcast. You know, I'm very grateful for that from the earth. And hunting is hard. Hunting is very hard. And once the megafauna were extinct, you know, once there weren't, you know, how big the woolly mammoth is or these mega, mega elephant creatures, these big creatures. I mean, bison, there were 100 million bison in the United States, you know, hundreds of years ago. And those are pretty big prey. But, you know, a woolly mammoth is much bigger than that. So if you don't have a tribe of people to hunt a huge animal, there's going to be times when you don't have animal foods and you have to fall back on plant foods for a short amount of time. But they're survival foods. They're just survival foods. That's, that's what I think, that they're survival foods. And now we have ultimate access to animal foods all the time. Whether or not we should and can and sustainably do that is a whole other thing that we can try and address in the next three minutes, and then we'll have to wrap up. But um, there's, there's lots of questions here. Now we can access the best foods on the planet. The title of the book is The Carnivore Code. I almost called it Apex Predator. Because we really have become the apex predator on the planet. We can go hunt. Inspired any- by Brian Johnson. <laughs> drops that term into his internet language all the time. The yeah. apex predator in the house. Uh-huh. Apex predator. So we can get, we can be successful in hunts all the time. And the other message that I want to let people know is if you're thriving, I don't think you need to stop eating plants. Realize that there's a spectrum of plant toxicity and maybe you could be doing even better by, a, 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 you know, by taking that into consideration. And I talk about that in the book in detail, but for people who are not thriving, for people who are sick and inflamed and autoimmune disease, it's not getting better. Inflammation, depression, it's not getting better. Plants can trigger this in a lot of people, whether it's through the gut or other issues like we talked about. 
curcumin affecting biochemistry, sulforaphane affecting biochemistry. We don't need these things to be optimal. I just want to say a couple of words about sustainability and then we'll wrap up because the question I get is, can we feed everyone with animals? And I would say that is not the right question. The right question is, can we feed everyone, period? And the answer to that is no. <laughs> because if we, there are two arguments here, or at least two framings. We can look in the United States or we can look in the world. But I think arguments that have to do with the world are untenable and not even worth talking about because I can't control the politics, the farming, or any of that stuff in India, right? We can talk about the United States. So if we talk about the United States, it's absolutely possible to equal the amount of beef production that we have in the United States right now with entirely grass feeding. We could eliminate feedlots from the United States completely, absolutely completely. Now, if everyone in the United States, 300 million people were to go fully carnivore, which would be an impossible, it would never happen, right? But then we would have to think like, where are we gonna raise all these animals from? And we'd have to, that would be a, a thing. But with the amount of beef that is produced right now from feedlots, we could convert all of that to grass feeding, absolutely. It wouldn't be very hard by increasing the productivity of the land. If we increase the productivity of the land, if we it's all about the soil. And when the soil has more organic matter, it grows more plants. When the soil has more organic matter, it also sequesters more carbon. And there are these amazing farms like White Oak Pastures and Belcampo. White Oak Pastures is in Georgia, Belcampo is in Northern California, Rome Ranch in Texas, who are showing that with this regenerative agriculture, by raising animals properly, rotational grazing, animals pooping on the land, animals eating grass, they can increase the amount of organic matter in the soil and that is the way it's always been. 100 million buffalo roaming in the U.S. were increasing the amount of organic matter in the soil. The soil used to be 5 to 6% carbon. In most of the fields that people are rehabilitating now, rehabilitating, it's 0.5%. For every 1% increase in organic matter in the soil, you can hold 20,000 more liters of water per hectare. That's something that on that order, you have to quote me on the study, but... We know that when we deplete the soil of nutrients with monocrop plant agriculture, topsoil erodes, it won't hold water, the carbon can't be sequestered, mycorrhizal networks of fungus collapse. How do we correct that? We create ecosystems. Ecosystems need animals. And these farms are showing that more you can sequester more carbon into the soil than these animals produce because it's all part of the carbon cycle as well. We don't have time to go into all that, but I would encourage people to check it out, regenerative agriculture. But the answer is, it's absolutely the only answer that we have for this planet is to recreate the ecosystems that we've destroyed. Monocrop agriculture tills the soil. When you till the soil, you release all the carbon into the soil, into the atmosphere. The majority of the carbon dioxide on this planet is stored in the ground. You till the soil, you release it into the atmosphere. I heard some podcast recently saying that we have uh, like 60 crop cycles left, and that's it. And, and then only, we're screwed. And actually, so we better be doing what Dr. Paul's saying here. We are pretty, yeah. we are pretty damn close to being screwed. And um, the only reason we, we actually were screwed probably 50, 60 years ago, and ammonium nitrate fertilizer you know, helped us. Mm. And that's completely false, right? That's not even the real thing, right? So we're using a crutch, but the real way is to put animals back on the land. Dr. Paul Saladino, author of... The Carnivore Code. Go grab it. It's chock full of incredible information. Six hundred references. Just a little tidbit. Yeah, wonderful work. Keep keep doing what you're doing. And we find you on Instagram mainly with your you can find thriving me. picture oh. site. My website is carnivoremd.com. I got a podcast, Fundamental Health. Mm, that's right. And my Instagram is carnivoremd, and so I'm same on Twitter. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, brother. Dun, 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 dun. 
thank you for listening to the show. We would love your feedback at getoveryourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And we would also love if you could leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a hassle. You have to go to desktop iTunes, click on the tab that says ratings and reviews, and then click to rate the show anywhere from five to five stars. And it really helps spread the word so more people can find the show and get over themselves because they need to. Thanks for doing it.